Welcome to the Bonner Private Research Podcast. I'm your host, Joel Bowman. Each week, we bring you exclusive conversations with members of Bill Bonner's private research team, as well as some special guests we'll meet along the way. We're trying to connect the dots, from high finance to lowly politics, private investments to public follies, from Wall Street to Main Street, at home and on the road. We're into sound money, personal freedom, classical books, and great wines. Not always in that order. So join me and the rest of the Bonner Private Research team as we pack our bags and follow the money. Where goes sound money, so too goes civil society. That's our subject for today. From drachma debasement in ancient Greece to clipped coinage during the Roman Empire. From the freshly inked assignats rolling off the presses in the lead up to the French Revolution to the hollowing out of the Weimar Republic during the hyperinflationary period of the 1920s, sowing the seeds of discontent that would eventually give rise to the National Socialist German Workers' Party and that most bleak period of history that followed. Whether denominated in Hungarian pangos, Polish slotties, Brazilian reals, or Venezuelan bolivars, it seems that everywhere we look, monetary pride goes before societal decline and fall. From where I sit down here today in Argentina's capital to the ruinous state of Zimbabwe, once known as Africa's breadbasket, and now little more than an economic basket case. Literally from A to Z, in countries the world over, history is replete with cautionary tales of what happens when the feds crank up their printing presses. Ah, this time will be different, goes that same old cry, urging us to ignore all past and documented experience to the contrary. The question becomes... Why do we fall for such an obvious ruse, again and again? Why do we suppose that the immutable laws of economics will be suspended, in our favour, just this once? Why in all our blazing, hubristic arrogance, do we see ourselves as the precious exceptions to history's ironclad rule? As you've no doubt read, money printing in the West has gone into hyperdrive once again this year with the U.S. Federal Reserve adding $3 trillion to its balance sheet between February and June alone, taking its total holdings from around $4 trillion to just over $7 trillion. For context, the Fed's balance sheet back in 2002, after the dot-com bubble, was less than three-quarters of $1 trillion. As Pantera Capital CEO Dan Moorhead noted earlier this year, The United States printed more money in June than in the first two centuries after its founding. In fact, the U.S. budget deficit for that month alone, coming in at $864 billion, was larger than the total debt incurred from 1776 through to the end of 1979. So what might this portend for our future? Perhaps a look into the past can provide some clues. To take just one of the aforementioned examples, that of the French Revolution, the printing presses there were rolling long before heads, royal and otherwise, were. Under Kings Louis XV and XVI, France had run up enormous and unserviceable debt loads, in part thanks to her vast warfare expenditures abroad, 
including backing America in her war of independence, and lavish governmental expenses at home. Guns and butter, bread and circuses, welfare and warfare. Call it what you will, the net effect remained the same. By the 1780s, France's balance sheet was in tatters. The country's General Assembly tried tax increases and spending cuts, but such austerity measures proved, then as now, unpopular with the masses, and so were soon abandoned. By the end of the decade, all honest opinion having been exhausted, the French did what so many had done before them. They looked around for a dishonest one, and they didn't have to look far. As the historian Andrew D. White recounted a century later in his book, Fiat Money Inflation in France, statesmanlike measures, careful watching and wise management would, doubtless, have ere-long led to a return of confidence, a reappearance of money, and a resumption of business. But these involved patience and self-denial, and thus far in human history, these are the rarest products of political wisdom. Few nations have ever been able to exercise these virtues, and France was not then one of these few. No doubt there were impassioned arguments on both sides, for and against money printing. Opponents would have pointed to historical disasters, such as the 1720 Mississippi bubble, still relatively fresh in the Frenchman's collective memory. Meanwhile, proponents might have summoned that old saw, tried and true, against which so few politicians seem to be able to hold their ground. This time will be different, they'd have argued, same as always. So it was after long deliberation that the General Assembly agreed to that round of money printing. Juste ce fois. Just this once, they'd have told themselves. The bills, assignats, were to be backed by church property, especially confiscated for this very purpose. And so, like magic, 400 million of them were put into circulation. And for a while, the old elixir seemed to do the trick. Commerce picked up, confidence rose, and people got to work spending their newly inked notes. Ah, the summer of 1790, France, was surely the place to be. Until came the fall. By then, economic activity had again began to slump, and along with it, the hopes of the monetary conjurers and the printing press pressed the digitators. Observed White, The old remedy immediately and naturally recurred to the minds of men. Throughout the country began another cry for another issue of paper. Rather than admit they had made a mistake, in other words, borrowing from the future that which the present had not yet earned, the General Assembly did what all such assemblies of men in their position do. They doubled down on that devilish deed. It was not the money printing itself that was to blame, they rationalized, but rather the magnitude of the issuance. 400 million units was simply not enough to stoke the embers and get the fire going again. Perhaps another round would help. Ah, but by then the fix was in. The conversation was no longer concerned with whether or not to print, but how much ought to be printed. And so the newly inked bills were sent forth across the land, 300 million, 400 million, 600 million units at a time. Here again, Mr. White describes the scene. The consequences of these over-issues now began to be more painfully evident to the people at large. Articles of common consumption became enormously dear, and prices were constantly rising. 
orators in the Legislative Assembly, clubs, local meetings and elsewhere, now endeavoured to enlighten people by assigning every reason for this depreciation save the true one. They declaimed against the corruption of the ministry, the want of patriotism among the moderates, the intrigues of the emigrant nobles, the hard-heartedness of the rich, the monopolizing spirit of the merchants, the perversity of the shopkeepers, each and all of these as causes of the difficulty. And this was only the beginning. Where sound money had gone, civil society was about to follow. Slowly at first, then all of a sudden, peaceful protests turned violent, and angry mobs began smashing shop fronts and setting fire to businesses. A jilted peasantry marched in the streets, demanding necessities such as their daily bread, the price of which was now afloat on an ever-rising tide of newly issued money. By the time King Louis XVI received the guillotine's closest shave in 1793, there were some 3.5 billion assignats in circulation. And when his wife, Marie Antoinette, lost her own head later that same year, the price of her infamous cake was far beyond the reach of most peasants. Which leaves us to wonder, fast-forwarding to the present day, with mobs again marching in the street, demanding their just desserts and decrying economic inequality, what role money printing has played in the current malaise? We see protesters, for instance, sharpening their guillotine blades out the front of Mr. Jeff Bezos's mansion, but the symbolism is dull. As far as we know, the Amazon CEO didn't print any money, even if an inordinate amount of it did flow in his direction. Had the protesters actually read their history, they might instead remove their instrument of capital punishment to the nation's capital, to be erected out front of the Federal Reserve Building. Then again, if they truly did know the story, they would also know that, not long after those royal heads did roll, it was the Jacobin revolutionaries themselves whose necks were next on the block. Where goes sound money, indeed? Joining me to discuss all this and more is Dan Denning, co-author of The Bonner Denning Letter and frequent voice of reason on this show. The deterioration in civil society is related to the deterioration in the soundness of the money. When it comes to heeding the lessons of history, Dan reckons our present-day economic and political landscape bears significant and worrying resemblances to those of pre-revolution France and cultural revolution China, a toxic concoction you'll surely agree. So pull up a chair, dear listener, grab yourself a slice of Antoinette's cake, and enjoy my conversation with Dan Denning. Up next. Okay, Dan, mate, welcome to the show. It's, uh, it's wonderful to catch up with you again. How are you doing? I'm good. It's good to be back. Sorry, I was away. I was working on the um, monthly issue of the Bonner Denning letter, and we were awaiting some uh, some news. Uh, and uh, some of it came, and some of it didn't. But it always takes me a while to. Well, it takes me about a week to get that out the door, and, and last week it was right in the middle of it. So it's done, and I'm back. It's good to be here. All right. Yeah. Well, here for you being your. Uh your fortress of solitude, as you call it up in Colorado. I was just looking at the news coming out of Australia this morning. And for listeners who don't know, you began this, uh, this whole kind of global health um, situation in Australia, in Melbourne. And you must be pretty happy that you 
made the decision to do the chicken run and and hightail it to the US given what's going on there. Yeah, uh, in retrospect it looks like really good timing. I mean, uh, I I can't take too much credit for it because I was scheduled to leave Australia in the middle of May anyway, so I had to move it back about a week. And I'm really really um saddened and I think if I were there I'd be even upset about what's going on with uh what I what we've described is really unchecked executive power using a state of emergency and then also a, a separate a power invoked for a state of disaster which was invoked after the bushfires but was also declared in response to covid and really is you know we talked about it at length last time but uh, i wish all my friends and colleagues there well it's it's important as you know when you travel internationally not to mistake the policies of a government for the people of a country. So, mm. you know, Australians are great people. Uh, but it's a tough time right now if you are a lover of individual liberty and a respecter of the rule of law. Yeah, that's really well said too that the separation between people uh and those who would uh would claim to represent their their very best interests are sometimes two very very different things. Um, what was the the Franklin quote again? The the he who would surrender a little liberty for the promise of security deserves neither. I think uh, in Australia they're figuring out that that's what they get. Uh, neither of those two things. So yeah, it's a it's a very sad situation. But um, look, getting back to our uh, regular beat here, which is money. Uh, I, I know you've got a lot to say, um, given that you've just uh, you've just put out this month's letter, um, and I'm sure it was it's packed full of research and and interesting nuggets which we can go through here but just a, a couple of headlines i i couldn't help but noticing uh, that crawled across my computer screen uh earlier this week one being uh, that mr jeff bezos just became the first man to surpass the 200 billion dollar personal net wealth mark uh, net wealth mark yes that's correct uh which for context is roughly the gdp of uh greece and then elon musk um past the $100 billion, billion milestone, which is about the GDP of Ecuador. Um, first of all, what do, you make, what do you make of those two things? I mean, you and I are old enough to remember when a billion dollars was a lot of money. And now it seems like if you don't have 100 or 200, then you're, you're not even near the rich list. Yeah, it's crazy. I, I mean, I, I was looking today, now that I'm planning on being in one place for a year at least, I unpacked all my books and I, I don't have a copy of, is it Charles Mackay, the, the madness of madness crowds. Of crowds. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, there's several great books, which, which recount what happened during the South sea bubble and the Mississippi bubble. When you had, a, an all encompassing mania grip, a population about an idea. And I think that's, what's going on here. I mean, it's important to remember that net worth is, is a function of the stock price of those companies. So this isn't liquid cash. You know, they can convert some of it into cash, but it's it's an increase in the stock price of Amazon and Tesla's mad run over two thousand mm. dollars per share, where it may go. And now you're getting people setting price targets of thirty five hundred bucks. And it, there's all sorts of arguments about why these things are justified. But really, what it is is it's it's um, it's just a massive claim on the future that the future as the undiscovered country will be dominated by a handful of tech companies who provide the backbone and the content and all the services that change how we live and how we work. I think at the high level, that's the argument that justifies stock prices and their net worth is, is derived from the increase in the stock prices. But these are narratives that are, that are 
provided to explain what uh, history will look back and just describe uh, describe as a bubble. So mm-hmm. yes, there's a kernel of truth uh, to the role of these companies in changing the way the economy works, defining the way we work. But when you look at when you look at those sheer numbers and compare the wealth of an individual to the GDP of an entire country, um, then it, Occam's razor applies. The simplest explanation is that this is a huge bubble created by the Federal Reserve, and Mm -hmm. we are living in a mania that they're going to write about in the history books. Yeah, so talk about that uh, for a second too, because I think uh, a lot of people, particularly those who are, you know, sharpening the guillotine out the front of Mr. Bezos's house in wherever it is, uh, I think a lot of those people look at wealth inequality and just completely miss the Fed's hand in in creating the very inequality that they they rage against. So do you want to kind of map out? I mean, I know that's a very big, complex question, but but just a brief kind of overview of why the Fed is really the active ingredient uh, there and often so missed. Yeah, I, you know, it is a it's a big question, but in the simplest terms, in with uh, the Fed's conventional policy by lowering interest rates. And it's unconventional policy, unconventional monetary policy, pursuing quantitative easing and various bond buying programs to support uh, bond prices for government bonds and corporate bonds. Uh, It has taken people out of interest bearing instruments like bonds, fixed income, and put put them into um, uh, risk assets or equities, equities in general that more specifically, when you took look at the different factors that uh, money managers and asset allocators look at when selecting equities, you have traditionally you have value, growth, momentum. There's others, but uh, but everybody's in growth. Everybody's in Apple. Everybody's in Amazon. Although professionals are anyway, and I think that's directly related to uh, the Fed lowering interest rates because it feared deflation back uh, when. Ben Bernanke made his famous speech in 2012. And then since then, uh, the big issue is that the increase in the money supply, which is measurable, uh, has not correlated into a rise in consumer price inflation. It's correlated to a rise in asset prices. So the larger the Fed balance sheet gets, uh, the higher stock prices go. And I know there are people who reject that and say, well, no, it doesn't work that way. You don't understand the mechanics. It's much more complicated than that. And you're simplifying it. But you know, the numbers are what they are. And from a psychological point of view, that it's pretty clear that, that uh, investors believe that the Federal Reserve will not allow the stock market to crash. And after the news uh, this week with Jerome Powell, I think uh, investors believe that even more than they did before. So we're we're... We've crossed the Rubicon for monetary policy, as it were, and it's it's going to be crazy. Right. Yeah. You so you mentioned for those who who weren't paying attention to that news that that you think this particular speech will be remembered as the day the Fed sort of loosened its belt, as it was, and said we we are going to tolerate more than two percent uh, inflation, which they they hadn't done uh, before. That had always kind of been the threshold that they uh, well they they'd made that the target, and now the the appetite seems to be. Uh, expanded. Yeah. So Joel, the, the interesting thing about the speech today is that it was widely billed as something that would redefine the Fed's approach to monetary policy and specifically how much inflation it's going to tolerate in the economy. 
And to cut to the chase, I think the important thing is that the Fed said it's going to tolerate more than 2% inflation because it's worried that the world has so much debt that that's harming growth. So people now think that that means the Fed will let the economy run hot. And Powell addressed directly the concern that most people have, that if your dual mandate, which the Fed has from Congress, is price stability and full employment, then why would you tolerate more than 2% inflation? Because for normal, real people in everyday life that don't live in gated communities and work for the federal government or, or they aren't Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk, increases in price for things like fuel and food and healthcare and education and just your normal everyday cost of living, that's not great. You know, you don't want more than 2.5% inflation. But Powell basically said today that uh, if Paul Volcker was sort of the anti-inflation guy and combated the great inflation with high interest rates, and Ben Bernanke was the sort of, uh, you know, Goldilocks, the uh, well, everything was just fine, the great moderation, inflation was neither too hot or new too, uh, nor too cold, then his job is to make sure we don't get deflation, disinflation or deflation like they got in Japan. So he, he said the Fed is prepared using all of its tools to, uh, to try and stoke inflation over two or two and a half percent. So investors have to study that. Uh, I'm going to read it in more detail, but I think it means the Fed is going to keep doing what they're doing. And even if they do, this is the important part, that may be enough for them to get the 2.5% inflation in the real economy. It opens the door up to uh, more fiscal spending, that fiscal policy has to come in and figure out how to get that money directly in the hands of the American public so that the Fed gets its 2.5% inflation. And by the way, uh, just to finish, the absurd thing about it is the entire rationale for why the Fed needs inflation of 2.5% is that it will create higher inflation expectations, which would allow higher interest rates, which would then allow the Fed to cut interest rates during the next <laughs> recession. So right. the only reason they need it is because it's the it, it's thing that makes them relevant. And that's why I think it's such an important moment is that it might have well have been the Fed confessing that to a large degree, it is irrelevant in the real economy, except with respect to financial asset prices like stocks. Mm. Uh, so th that's a big exception, mm -hmm. but uh, it means, wow, maybe the central bank can't do everything. And maybe we're going to get a Congress in November that decides it's going to try and do a lot more. So Dan, most people would recognize um, the, the looming specter of deflation as really just what Walmart promises every day, right? Which is lower prices every day. Why, why is that um, why is that such a bogeyman for, for central bankers? Well, they have this long memory of, of the particular understanding of the Great Depression and where, uh, um, where deflation meant a collapse in the money supply and in velocity of money. And it resulted in uh, bank runs, which resulted in the failure of many, many banks, which at that time and really still today, uh, banks are the heartbeat of new money creation in the economy. They extend credit to small businesses and businesses. And when you deposit money in the bank under a fractional reserve lending system, the bank can turn those deposits into new lending. And in fact, they can do it without deposits as well. They can just create money. Um, but that's the main issue for the central bank is that 
if uh, if deflation takes hold and and people start hoarding cash, or they believe that prices are going to fall further, so they withhold decisions about big ticket items like um, cars or uh, consumer goods or washers and dryers, those sorts of things, then uh, then it's a vicious cycle where they spend less and it puts businesses out of business and banks become more conservative. And it, it's like a slow freeze throughout the whole economy because people keep expecting lower prices and delaying decisions. That's what they feared would happen in the 30s. Of course, I, I don't. That's different than disinflation. That's different than what has driven lower prices since China joined the World Trade Organization in 2000. You've had a huge increase in uh, the supply of cheap textiles, electronics, and other goods, and you've had a, a huge, uh, for a long time, a huge decrease in the supply of energy. Although there was a couple of big spikes, but Energy costs are pretty low now. And you had a huge decrease globally in the cost of labor. So all of those things have kind of kept a lid on the level of inflation people see in their life every day. But central banks are afraid of repeating the 1930s. And all of the policies that you see today are in response to that fear. Mm. So uh, getting back to the idea of a sound and consistent money that is uh, predictable, neither uh, inflates or deflates too much in the future so people can plan the purchases of their big ticket items. They can plan for uh, you know layaway, they can take loans, they can conduct their business and their transactions. Um, I guess most people think of, of money as, you know, other than the money in their purse, it's kind of a, an economic abstraction. And as you mentioned earlier, it's largely the the domain of kind of pointy headed policy wonks who hang out in Jackson Hole and glad hand and uh, shake each other's uh, you know shake each other's hand. But in a very real way, sound money is something that that underpins and stitches together real human relationships. Right? I mean, it's not just it. It is a unit of account, a medium of exchange, and a store of value, but. When we see little tweaks uh, in those undergirding characteristics, they can they can very very suddenly go go uh, extremely wrong, and then we start to see, you know, not just um, you know not just headlines about the economy going wrong, but we see uh, civilization start to fray, and there's been a long history of that. Yeah, well, you know, at a basic level, as you know, the the when you do business with someone or do any kind of trade transaction or barter, you know, the, the, the value that you exchange is a number, it's a nominal figure, and it's denominated in any number of currencies or commodities throughout history. But really what you're trading is your time, because it's, your time is what went into the production of the good and service, the growing of a crop, a skill that you acquired that other people value and don't have. And when the money system becomes perverted and abused, what it's really stealing from you is your time. And uh, that's why people ultimately get so upset. And th that time is either uh, reflected in the lifetime value of their savings or the hours and hours and hours they spent getting good at something so that they could, could exchange that uh, skill and that labor for purchase power. And when, when you start to mess with that value, it undermines the investments people have made in their life. And, I don't think that's an 
it's not obvious. Ec economists don't explain that well to people. They don't personalize that theft. We talk about taxation as theft or inflation as theft, but it's not just the purchasing power of your money that's being stolen. It's all of the time that you invested in making something or acquiring the skills and the experience, and the knowledge to provide something that other people found valuable. That that's what gets um, that's what gets inflated away. And that that's what makes people so upset. Right, and I think you know, not to be overly dramatic here, but I think when we look back in history and we look at sort of various rev revolutions, it's not, I think, uh, accidental that we so often see debasement of the currencies really operating almost in concert with you know large-scale uh, civil unrest from French Revolution you know all the way back to the collapse of Rome and on and on and on um, and <laughs> I I guess this is an this is an unhappy way of seg segueing into um, what we're seeing both in Melbourne to circle back to the beginning of the conversation but also in the United States where people are very uncertain about what's going on right now uh you know we're living in this whole new world where um you know in, it's a kind of new speak world in, in many ways people are very uncertain about the times in which we're uh we're living through and one kind of little anecdotal data point that that you shared with me earlier is the the one metal that's gone up uh 300 i think in the last year from and i'm talking of course about lead particularly in the nine millimeter variety that's gone up from 25 cents around, I think you said, to something like a buck around, if you can find it. Yeah, yeah and you can't find it right now, actually. I, I just, well, I couldn't find it anyway. I, I, um, I, written, I had written in the newsletter that about this, this um, parallel phenomena of monetary debasement and the destabilization of the politics and the civil order. But then to make it real for people, I just said, look, if you want to look at the one thing that has been going up in price a lot in the last two years, it's the price of ammunition. So handgun sales are typically reported in the press, but if you don't have a bullet to fire, the gun is just a hunk of metal, right? You can throw it at someone, but, but <laughs> ammunition is hard to find right now. And uh, nine millimeter ammunition in particular, because it's a handgun ammunition um, and because, you know, a lot of, that's a lot a popular weapon for people to own for, for defense when they feel like they're threatened or they have something to protect. If you go online, you'll be lucky to find it. When you find it, you'll be limited in the amount that you can buy and the price will be often over a dollar around. Uh, in some places I saw today, it was $1.25. So I was able to buy ammunition for, for a long rifle and, or for 22 or for um, a shotgun, but, uh, but nine millimeter ammunition is, expensive and scarce and it's a combination of demand and supply because there has been some interruption in the normal supply due to covid which we could just add now to all earnings <laughs> reports due to covid this the due COVID, to COVID that the covid coda on every yeah that's report. right <laughs> there you go but you know it's the elections on november 3rd there's been a terrible shooting in wisconsin and it's you know one of many one of the latest of many, and uh, and now there's a. It seems to have spawned a phenomenon that it's not related to legitimate questions about policing and the militarization of the police. But there's just seems to be a, a group of people who pop up 
in any of these places and want to destroy property, inflame tensions, and break down civil order. And I think, you know, ordinary Americans see that and they go, uh oh, I'm not going to buy Tesla and Apple. I'm going to buy nine millimeter ammo and get myself a shotgun. So those aren't good signs. And, mm. you know, I, I don't blame everything on the Fed, but if our thesis is correct, the deterioration in civil society is related to the deterioration in the soundness of the money. And these signs like ammunition being both scarce and expensive or impossible to find, I think are related to what's uh, what started as a as a monetary experiment and now has just kind of consumed everything. 2020 America is 1968 France plus 1968 China plus 1783 France. So Soissons the Cultural Revolution or is it the Great Leap Forward I'm thinking of in China? Both really. I think Both, you yeah. know there, there's a combination of uh, generational ideological demographic mm. conflict and then uh in a wider sense the conflict between institutions the elite institutions that have become corrupt either in the literal sense or at least or in the moral sense uh and the people who who are governed by those institutions so there's <laughs> a lot going on uh, and so that's why i don't think it's going to to just magically end i think if joe biden wins you're going to see some massive government programs I think you're going to cons- you'll see a, a huge drop off in the emphasis on COVID. Suddenly, mortality rates will be reported. Suddenly, infection rates will be reported as going lower, and uh, but they'll keep it in their back pocket as they have done in Melbourne because it's now clear that it's a very useful tool for cowing people into submission. Then that many people will just accept that. So uh, I don't think the COVID stuff will totally go away. On the other hand, if Trump wins. You know, it's we're going to be going into the fall, into the winter. Every single sneeze, cold, cough, flu is going to suddenly be a reason to shut down the economy again. And that just, you know, there are so many people already uh, at their limit in terms of their small business or their ability to pay their rent or mortgage that any further clamping down on the economy from the top down at the federal level that really will one economically have obvious consequences and two that may push people psychologically to the point where if you've taken away everything I have, including my self-esteem from my ability to support my family through work, then nine millimeter rounds or two twenty three or twenty two or three oh eight, you know, it doesn't matter. The the conversation is now shifted to much more adversarial conversation with so I, I'm not looking forward to that, but but it's not our job to try and hope about what's going to happen. Just try to think it through um, and then take sensible preparations, both financially and personally, f- for those possible outcomes. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Bonner Private Research Podcast. You can find more conversations like this in the members-only section of our website at bonnerprivateresearch.com. If you would like to contact us, please address compliments and complaints alike to podcast at bonaprivateresearch.com. We look forward to hearing from you either way. Until next week.